Luckily for you, the answer to the great question of life, the universe and everything is to be found in this podcast, A Worker's Guide to Everything. Sometimes cans, often bad language, always solid politics. This is the Trademark Belfast podcast. Listen out for trademark regulars and very special comrade guests and fellow travellers talking all things lefty, Ireland and the world. We remain, as always, anti-sectarian, anti-racist and anti-fascist. Enjoy. Buenigisoltas. Hello and welcome to another Trademark podcast. I think actually this is number 100. So well done, lads. Thanks, Stuart, for helping us get there on our way. Um, we're going to talk today about another favourite topic of everybody on the left, which of course is inflation. I'm joined here by, uh, that was a joke by the way, I'm joined here today by Conrad Stuart McGill, uh, who's coming to us from London. And of course, is uh, Stuart's a top geezer, good commie, good Marxist. He has a black belt in some sort of weird fucking martial arts. I don't fuck around with uh, our Stuart. Sean Byers is also here, His Excellency Sean Byers. <laughs> also has a black belt. I didn't use Sean. Sean has a black belt, but that's more for holding up his trousers. Boom, Tish. Thank you very much. Another joke. It's two jokes in 30 seconds. Moving on. Um, we're going to got a couple of questions today, really. And we had a couple of um, responses from a previous podcast when we looked at kind of the political economy of 2023. Uh, and one of the issues, of course, is inflation. The other issue is how inflation affects debt and the debt that's been carried, particularly by zombie companies, which we refer to in one of our first podcasts here. So we're going to kind of talk around that idea of inflation and why inflation is a class issue. Uh, not the most interesting topic, it would seem, but it's fundamental to understanding cost of living crisis and to understanding the direction that capitalism's going uh, at the moment, of course. So, lads, inflation—it's kind of killing us at the moment, isn't it? And we've got—we've come to the end of the era, it seems, of cheap money, which we've talked about before. And we've had our number of uh, podcasts on monetary theory, on quantitative easing, on the role of central banks. There's significant monetary tightening underway all across the globe. We're still dealing, of course, with a huge energy shock. Uh, we're dealing with the consequences of the war in Ukraine, which all these things add to inflationary pressures. But we've got governments almost, not everywhere, but almost everywhere, responding to these challenges by simply hammering the working class and hammering workers and hammering communities. So that's the solution. Mainstream economists and orthodox economics, of course, tells us very simply that inflation is, how do they define it? Too much money chasing too few goods, and therefore the price of goods goes up. Uh, and they tell us further that because workers respond to the rise of prices by demanding pay increases, that um, that creates a wage price spiral. That's what they started off with about a year ago. That You hear that phrase less and less at the moment. So I want to talk about that, about whether are we winning this battle slightly in terms of the battle around economics about a true understanding of what's going on. So we're told that we need to keep wages low. But at the same time, then the increased prices of goods are passed on to them. Same workers, so it's like a double whammy. Um, but the, the fundamental analysis is that workers, <laughs> believe it or not, workers have too much money. And so we need to take money off workers in various ways in order to reduce demand and therefore reduce inflation. Hey, presto, inflation comes down, everybody's happy. It also means, of course, bankrupting businesses, broken factory closes, job losses, savage cuts in living standards and all the other things. So it seems that workers are destined to carry the brunt of this inflationary period. So I want to talk briefly about at the start, lads, just very broad. Just give me your ideas, give me your thoughts on what's wrong. Uh, I'll go to you first, Sean, if you don't mind. What's wrong with that that orthodox story of inflation? Yeah, well, suppose to begin with, it's worth pointing out that there are problems with how inflation is even measured, which is implications for how the policy is designed to address it. So what's known as core inflation, which is measured by the CPI, and that's the one that central banks and politicians and policymakers focus on, doesn't include food, energy, or housing costs, like the three things that have the biggest impact on the livelihoods of, of ordinary people. 
So food, energy bills and rents could be 20% higher, which pushes people obviously on lower incomes deeper into poverty. But CPI inflation might be sitting at 5%. And that's the figure that central bankers and the political class are, are concerned with. Another issue with CPI is it treats wages as an aggregate. So it says you know, the wages component of CPI is up, but that ignores the wage differentials between different sectors and different types of employment. So at the moment, they're saying wages is up, but it's wages in the financial, legal, and professional services sectors that is up, whilst everyone else's wages are down. But yeah, the, the orthodox narrative that you were talking about which is pushed by bankers and those on the right of the political spectrum, emphasizes the role of money supply. As you've said, it says there's too much money in the economy, chasing too few goods and services. And the solution is to reduce the money supply by increasing interest rates, which makes it more expensive to borrow. And it supposedly encourages saving. And that comes hand in hand with the argument that there's too much money in people's pockets. People are being paid too much. The problem with this, is that it conveniently ignores the main drivers of inflation, which at the moment or in recent times have been supply chain issues, issues of production, the impact of climate breakdown, energy costs, and of course, profiteering. So I should also say that this theory has been totally refuted by the experience of the past 20 or 30 years. Mm. trillions of dollars of cheap money has been pumped into the economy through quantitative easing without any measurable impact on inflation. And the reason for that is because it's not going into the real economy. It's going into uh, inflating asset prices. It's going into the pockets of people who are already very rich. So there's a number of problems with the orthodox narrative and the response that, that flows from that. Yeah, thanks for that. The, the, the mean, whenever you mention inflation, people immediately come at you with Zimbabwe or Weimar Germany, and people taking down their wages in wheelbarrows. You're like, for fuck's sake, read a read a textbook, read read something that's been written since 1970. You know what I mean? And as you say, the evidence we have from that period of quantitative easing and cheap money proves the point that extra money in a system doesn't necessarily lead to inflation. So therefore, that might lead you to think, well, are there other causes of inflation? And we'll get onto that in a minute. But Stuart, just a sub question there. You mentioned that. Consumer price index. There's another. So RPI then retail price index. So CPI is a useless tool. You're telling us in order to measure inflation it doesn't really tell us very much. What about the retail price index, Sean? Is that any better? Well, it's slightly better, and then it factors in at least those food and energy and housing costs. The argument for not including those figures in CPI is that they're too volatile. But the reality is that they they are a more accurate reflection of the living standards of of ordinary people. And the pressures that they're facing. Yeah, um, so wrong, wrong analysis, wrong diagnosis, wrong wrong treatment. Patient dies. Stuart, give us your thoughts on um, that that kind of orthodox understanding of inflation and why we have to, you know, challenge it every time we see it and move on from it as well. Okay, it's fundamentally mechanical. It takes away human agency and it talks about the economy as if it's a, a natural mechanism. This is what this happened in the nineteenth century when we moved from political economy to economics, a science, a so-called neutral science. Uh, and it's the ultimate reification, to use a good Marxist term there to a certain extent. The economy is the product of a myriad of individual decisions, uh, not the work in the some immutable fucking mechanism. God, look at fucking Unilever uh, in terms of inflation here. Just came out with something like 21% increase in profits, no increase in sales. They've exploited the inflationary environment to Hike prices. So, and this is way above the rate of inflation, too. 
Now, The Economist a couple of weeks ago, they criticised the IMF whenever the latter actually came out and said that I think they said about 45% of inflation was down to profiteering. And The Economist used the classic line you guys were talking about, too much money chasing too few goods. Now, apart from being absolute shite, it absolves capital and also governments from responsibility for their decisions and distracts from the capacity societies do have to rectify the problem at source. You look at Harbour Energy, which is one of the biggest producers up in the North Sea. They had a tenfold increase in profits due to the increase in the wholesale gas prices. They did fuck all. This was a windfall. So that causes knock-on price effects throughout the entire economy. I think the profits went from, yeah, they went from $120 million to $1.5 billion. Now, for Britain, 50% of our gas comes from the North Sea producers. If you cut their prices back to where they were before the recent inflation, right, then you take away half the problem. They'll still make good profits. Cry no tears for those fuckers. And don't fall for this line that they'll, drop in they'll drop investment because a large part of the investment in fact a large part of the stuff that harbor made they gave back to shareholders so there is a basic assumption that corporate profitability is sacrosanct and must be defended cost increases must be passed on just one minute here uh, and if people have to die in the process that's okay i'm just agreeing with you two as well back in 2008 huge amount of money created no increase in inflation milton friedman the god of all this bollocks, he admitted before he died that most of what he said was tosh. Thanks for that. Yeah, Milton Friedman, you want to come in there? Jump in, mate. Yeah, and I'm sure we'll get on to this, like, but Stuart's raised this issue. We not only need to understand the causes of inflation itself, but we have to understand the broader political implications of it. And inflation has to be seen in terms of a distributional conflict over the economic surplus in society. So it is a question of class conflict. Uh, and people on the left and the liberal movement need, need to understand that. So basically, it can be seen from the fact that companies have been able, as Stuart has said, companies have been able to increase their prices by more than was necessary to cover their increased energy costs. And it's workers and citizens, on the other hand, that have been shouldering this cost in the form of higher prices and lower wages. I think in, in across Europe as a whole, wages are lower by 4% in, re in real terms. And the reason why companies are able to get away with this is due to their economic and political power. The balance of forces is skewed heavily in favour of capital. We're seeing some strikes emerging across all sectors in an attempt to address, redress this imbalance, to win back some of the economic surplus and restore, if not increase, real wages. So like as Marxists and people on the left, that's how we have to under understand it. Yeah, I think I think this really important point there about the, the economic and political power of capital, of course, and it's also the idea that workers and workers' organisations and the trade union more broadly either ignore or don't seem to understand what's going on at the moment in terms of how this is this is as you said a distributional conflict where states are making sure that whatever profits are being created are going straight back to capital and that workers are being forced to pay for that. But the other point that's really interesting that Stuart brought up, and I'll just mention it again, is that. Treating economics as a natural phenomenon is a really important story because it convinces people, convinces workers, convinces far too many in our own movement, in organised workers' movements, that actually what you're going to do because this is just natural and therefore there's nothing governments can do to avert this or to challenge it or to combat it. So I think that's a really important story about how they get away with the kind of the myth-making around economics. It's like gravity. It's like science, as Stuart said. So therefore you can't question it. You know what I mean? It's just this is the way things are and there's no alternative. And so what we'll move on to next, I know you wanted to come in, Stuart, and I'll let you come in, but 
just to remind myself that distributional conflict is really important. I want to talk about that next, the idea of profits versus wages, because that's at the heart of all of this, of course. Stuart, come in there, mate. Yeah, I've been doing quite a bit of work on this because I've been doing some work elsewhere, which I need to plug a little bit later on in this podcast. No worries. Uh, I meant to say congratulations on getting to the 100th podcast, guys. It is a bit of a privilege to be on this 100th episode. Thank you very much indeed. Now, according to the ONS, average real weekly wages in Britain, adjusted using the CPI here, they fell from 532 in February 2008 to 497 in April 2023. This is a fall of about 7%. The economy is around 4% bigger than it was in 2008. Now, nobody seems to be saying this apart from us. If the economy is growing or, or staying steady, and real wages are falling, that means the money is going to capital rather to labour. This is the distributional stuff that Sean was talking about. Uh, the fall in weekly real wages uh, from March 22 to April 23, 521 per week, uh, right, went down to £497 per week. So this is a fall of 4.6% over the period in which the size of the economy has remained stable. Capital is pocketing the difference. Now, in the Eurozone, where everything is going fucking great, according to the centrists, who are still incredibly greeting-faced about our leaving, for workers across those 20 countries that share the euro, real compensation per hour has dropped by about 7% since the start of 2021, while the eurozone economy in that time has grown by about 10%, according to figures from the World Bank. So across there, and this is largely what's happened in Germany, I think, because they tend to dominate the Eurozone in times of the economy. And the German economy is having a rough time. And unions have been fucking gelded there to a large extent. There's been a significant drop in real wages. I mean, we we'll probably talk about Spain later on. They've had a very successful attempt to bring inflation down. It's less than 2% now. Spanish real wages have unfortunately crumbled as well. Yeah, one of the one of the metrics, um, thanks for that shit. One of the metrics that are really important to focus on here, Sean, is, is that idea of if you want to work out what's going on with particularly within a national economy or within a something like the Eurozone, which is a, a broader kind of network of economies that work closely together, is labor's share of national income. We always say that before, like who's getting the wealth created within a particular society, within a particular economic region? And what's happened to Labour's share of income in Europe, in Britain, in Ireland over the last 30, 40 years? Yeah, so uh... National income is the value of the goods and services produced in society. And as you said, like one of the clearest, starkest indicators of how an economy is functioning and in whose interests is just to look at this simple indicator of the share of national income going to labour, mainly in the form of wages and other forms of compensation, and the share that's going to capital in the form of profits. And what we've seen happening over the past 30 years in the advanced capitalist world, in the West primarily, is that the share going to labour has been gradually falling, whilst the share going to profits has been increasing. I think over across the OECD as a whole, labour share has fallen from about 60% to 50%, under 50% in those three decades, which means that capital has gained an average of 10% from labour. It's taken 10% away from labour and into its own coffers. In some countries, it's much more stark. I think in Britain, it's much more stark. In the US, it's much more stark. But the average is like 10% taken from labour and going to profits. Labour share did increase a wee bit during COVID. That's an aberration. That was due mm. to the impact of income supports introduced during that time and the sort of the halt that was brought to economic activity. But we've just like returned to business as usual since then. 
Yeah, I do remember that moment when Furlow came in and made me the happiest man in Ireland at the time. I do. <laughs> we were all shitting ourselves, but um, that's not what we talk about. The, the idea of the fall of, of Labour's share of national income is crucial to understanding the, the neoliberal project of the last 50 years. It's central to that, as is, of course, the fall in union density, fall in union numbers, changes to our workplace, increase in precarity, the gig economy and all the rest of it. Like if you're a trade unionist, and I am, you know... We, we don't admit that, that we fucking lot, we failed over the last 30, 40 years. And we've massively fucking failed. And particularly within the Eurozone, just failed on behalf of workers. Um, Sean's given a talk soon. You'll have, have to plug this at the end soon, Sean. Sean's given a talk soon, public talk in Dublin on on the, on the Social Europe. And I'm looking forward to you fucking taking a scalpel to that concept, Sean, of Social <laughs> Europe. Um, but that, uh, Stuart, the other side to this, then, um, on one side, you've got this the, the fall of Labour's share of national income. Well, then what are the real causes of inflation? Then what's really, if it's not wages causing inflation, what are the genuine causes? What's driving inflation? Talk us through some of your kind of key pillars and understanding the, the core drivers of inflation. Remember back in uh, back in 2021, Morgan Stanley, not exactly comrades, they argued then that profits had to shrink to absorb the pain of inflation, making up for what they said were decades in which capital increased its share at the expense of workers and consumers alike. What Sean was talking about there. Uh, we talked about Unilever, we talked about Harvard already. Look at the increase in the refining spread taken by refineries over across 21 and 22. That added 24 pence a litre to fuel over those two years, according to the Competition and Markets Authority, which replaced the old Monopolies and Merger Commission. Now, that was profit margin taken by refiners. Fuck all to do with Putin or any sort of increased costs. Recently, I don't know what it's like across there in the north, but here... Diesel prices and petrol prices have become pretty much the same after having a significant differential for a long time. The CMA stepped in and they said to the diesel people, you're taking something like 22 pence margin on diesel compared to historic average of about seven pence. So in order to avoid more ag, they put the prices down. Now, obviously, these prices, something like fuel, that filters through seriously to the rest of the economy. Also, getting back to the CMA, my favorite people right now. April 2022 report showed that average markups had increased since 2008 from just over 20% to 35%. And for the 10% most profitable companies, they tend to be the bigger companies, they'd risen from 58% in 2008 to 82% in 2022. Uh, also, let's talk a little bit about our buddies in the commodities industry, which we've talked about a hell of a lot more. I think we're the only fuckers that talk about these people, and it is so important to understand their importance. Now, the food billionaires have seen their collective wealth, according to a report from Oxfam, grow by 45% over the past two years. $328 billion in total added to the profits. Uh, Cargill, 11th richest family in the world. Uh, and according to 27, and sorry, according to Oxfam again, 2017 report, uh, I think four oligarchs control about 70% of the global market for agricultural commodities. Since 2020, Cargill's wealth has grown by 65%. Louis Dreyfus, who are their big rivals, 44% jump in net profit in 2022. You get the picture here. We can't blame all this on the supermarkets. There are a small number of people that control the food industry. They're exploiting this environment in order to increase the profits more. Yeah, I think, again, if people want to go back and listen to the podcast we did on the commodity markets, on the on the men and women, mostly men, but on the men and women that kind of buy and sell the building blocks of capitalism, understanding their role in all of this and driving inflation. 
and also in capturing profits is, is absolutely crucial. And as Stuart said, it's quite opaque. People don't look into that. They don't look into the role of the commodity markets in modern capitalism, but it's it's one of the most important nodes of power and economic control on the planet, how these people buy and sell all, everything we need to build houses, to create goods and services, to eat food, all the rest of it. Um, he, he outlined quite in detail there, Sean, about the massive profiteering that's going on at the moment. That's quite a price gouging that's going on everywhere. Some state regulations working from time to time, but broadly speaking, capital is just having a fucking, it's, it's just every day's Christmas for them, isn't it? I mean, the term greedflation kind of appeared recently, and it's kind of true, isn't it, to a degree? Yeah, and Stuart's covered it in, in great detail. You know, despite there have been concerted attempts by corporate interests, by the political establishment, by central bankers and policymakers to paint this as a wage price spiral, as inflation being driven primarily by wages. But the evidence is consistently and overwhelmingly contradicted this narrative. And then as a result, the narrative started to fall apart. There's absolutely no doubt that corporate profiteering has been the biggest factor over the past number of years. And this has become increasingly the case over the past year. Now that energy costs are falling, um, supply chain issues have been at least partly resolved. Corporate profits account for over 50% of inflation. And that, like, that's empirically proved. There have been attempts to ignore or distract attention from this profiteering, but it's become so blatant and obvious that even the likes of the IMF, the European Central Bank, the Bank of England have had to acknowledge this reality publicly uh, and at least pretend that they're interested in addressing it. The problem, I suppose, for us is that they remain wedded to inflation reduction through a combination of high interest rates and austerity, neither of which are going to tackle the problem. But the, the happenstance, or the, the good thing for capital in all of this, of course, is that the current policy they're following, whilst it's not going to reduce inflation because it's not tackling the causes of inflation, it does hammer workers, it does hammer organised labour, it does hammer the labour movement. So it's a direct attack on organised on the organised working class, isn't it, Stuart? That's why they do it, now, mate. It's there to discipline labour. If you look at what's causing inflation, increasing interest rates now is a fundamentally stupid thing to do. But it does benefit the people because uh, you've got to face the fact the Tories are basically a pressure group for the rich. The government in America is a pressure group for the rich. And this isn't a particularly radical thing to say when you look at what they've done over the last, well, couple of hundred years, some would say. Uh, also, the interest rate increases. Um, they fuck things up regarding rents. People now are finding it difficult here in London, especially, to get the mortgage. So you're getting people with money going into the rental market, and the rental market is going fucking crazy. My daughter, well-paid software developer, she cannot afford to find a place to rent for herself. She has to uh, share with three or four other people. This is a very typical story here. I think in Dublin, it's a pretty dire situation as well. There was an um, there was an RTE program last night on um, landlords demanding sex for rent. Uh, that's what's going on now in Ireland in terms of the exploitation of young women as well who are looking of desperate, desperately looking for places to live. It's it's fucking unbelievable. Like, I know. I mean, the fucking gulag's not good enough for these cunts. It's the wall they need. Anyway, look, I want to move on briefly to another issue, which is you mentioned it already, so it's not a surprise, um, Stuart, that there are some governments that aren't um, using the wage price spiral as an excuse to hammer organised labour, but are actually directly addressing the real causes of inflation. One of those governments, and there was a a kind of Pyrrhic victory the other day on Sunday in Spain. Tell us a little bit, Sean, about Spain. What's Spain doing to challenge inflation? I think their inflation rate stands at something like 1.9%, which is one of the lowest across the Eurozone now. What are they doing that other governments aren't doing? And this, this is, is a good example of what states can do in this in this period. Well, the, the three things that come to mind are 
they you know they've introduced introduced things like free public transport, which has relieved some of the pressures on people. They've introduced an effective cap on profits through national domestic windfall tax. And the key thing that I'm sure Stuart will speak about is they've broken the link between European gas prices and domestic electricity prices, which is one of the things that was keeping domestic energy prices so high. So they've done three things at least, uh, plus other things to support workers and, and families throughout the crisis. They've really departed from the orthodoxy that was being prescribed across Europe. It was adopted at an EU level and was adopted by most nation states within, within the EU. It's almost as if, Stuart, that a transfer of wealth from capital to labour actually reduces inflation. Um, yes, it would certainly appear that way. Now, Spain still has some issues on, on, on the go, but what they've done is pretty much the stuff that we talked about they should do in late 2021, because you suppress the prices of some important goods, which can, um, if they increase, it filters through to the rest of the economy. Increases in fuel prices, increased inflation everywhere. Uh, and I think they reduce VAT on some staple goods. All this drops inflationary expectations and it creates an environment in which corporates feel less able to go ahead and up the prices. Uh, however, there's still problems there. Spanish real wages have dropped. I think Spanish real wages may have dropped more than anywhere else in Europe or in the Eurozone apart from the Netherlands. So all is not fucking rosy. Mm. They've certainly done a hell of a job compared to us. Yeah, the next thing I want to move on to um, in terms of one of the consequences of inflation, because I was thinking about this the other day, and I remember you telling me something, Stuart, when interest rates go up, debt becomes easier to service. And that struck a chord with me because I remember you were talking about, you want to talk about zombie companies. And for those who don't remember, we talked about this at length in, in the past, that one of the consequences of or one of the post-COVID kind of happenings within the economy was this idea that the OECD said that 10% of all companies in the OECD were zombie companies, meaning there were companies that were just kind of living dead, they were borrowing money to pay off their debts, or they were borrowing money to service their debts. Um, and I was assuming that as interest rates went up, then their debt levels would come down, but then they also therefore can't borrow money to service debts. So they're in a kind of a catch-22. Stuart and Sean, same question to both of you. You first, Stuart. What, what's the latest on the on the ten percent of companies, which is a massive one? These this employs millions of people in the OECD. Those ten percent of companies that come out of COVID as zombie companies. What what what's the situation there? Because this is an important indicator, of course, on the on the health of the economy. Absolutely, mate. Yeah. Now it's important to note that real interest rates are still negative. However, we built an economy which is based on mega low interest rates. Company insolvencies, England and Wales last month jumped 40% year on year, highest level since the monthly records began in January 2019. I think two and a half thousand companies were declared insolvent, mostly through creditors' voluntary liquidations, i.e. they just say we can't go on anymore. Is this because they literally can't borrow money to service their debts? Yeah, in many cases. Yeah, they just go straight forward. We can't continue with this. Uh, but also a 34% increase in compulsory liquidations. That's whenever a request from tax authorities to recover funds from companies unable to pay the tax bills. Now, we talked about this in our wee preview of the year back in January. In contrast, that situation for business, individual insolvencies were similar to the pre-pandemic levels. But if you look at the figures for basically credit card debt, uh, personal debt and level, they're a fucking nightmare as well, which is why it's another very stupid thing to do to increase interest rates, which pressures an already severely indebted population. I think we talked a little while ago outside this podcast about the net withdrawal of funds from the banking sector. 
a couple of months ago. I'm not sure what the most recent figures show. But I think some people are removing stuff from the banks to go ahead and find better interest rates elsewhere. Uh, but also a lot of people are having to dip into savings to pay the fucking bills, mate. Yeah, so Sean, are we seeing we're seeing the consequences? Of course, I mean we haven't recovered from two thousand eight. We're still in two thousand eight. People stop talking about the the consequences of the global financial crash, and many of those zombie companies, of course, emerged from that period of two thousand eight as zombie companies, and they've just kind of been staggering along ever since. So we're seeing possibly the end of that, but we're also seeing, aren't we, at the same time, an engineered recession? That I mean, this is what this is what capital wants to see. What they call creative destruction: the idea that we need to wipe out all these companies that aren't making profit. And, and sack millions of workers and start again. Is, is that happening as well? Yeah, I mean, these companies, as you've said, have been surviving on low interest rates. They were freely available during the era of cheap money. Um, they were always going to be in trouble in the event that interest rates went up. It's worth mentioning that the zombie companies, like only the, the base in which they operate is just to service their debt. They're not paying off any of their debt. They're just about servicing their debt. So... The scale of the interest rate hikes that we're seeing and we have seen in the past couple of years means a lot of these existing zombie companies are totally fucked. Um, it's worth mentioning that bankruptcies in the EU as well are at their highest in, in a decade. And I thought this is going to continue in the 2024, 25, 26. So for the sociopaths running the central banks, these zombie companies, as you suggested, Stevie, are just collateral damage in the quest to meet inflation targets. For economists, mainstream economists, they're just unproductive entities that should be allowed to fail. And in the natural, you know, operation of the of the system. But we're also talking about the loss of real jobs and all of the negative social and economic consequences associated with that. As you said, they employ millions of people. Not sure what the figure is in, in Britain or Ireland, but employ something like two million people in the US alone. There are also a big chunk of zombie firms operating in real estate, right? So, and that is obvious potential for knock-on effects on the housing market, on the credit system and the economy as a whole. Yeah, we were kind of, we might talk about that again. We, we did talk at the start of the year about the on, about the, the potential for commercial property crash before the end of 2023 and the knock-on effects that would have, as you said, on credit systems and on, and on domestic housing markets as well. But I want to move on slightly because we don't want to, we're running out of time a little bit. We've done 30 minutes. We'll do 35 minutes today, folks. That's what we've been told we should be doing for podcasts. So we're going to stick back into it. Um, one of the issues around inflation, and I was talking to a couple of people the other day about this, is that is the idea that inflation is going to be with us for good. That um, I, I saw the other day the first time the, the phrase climate inflation. And it's the idea that, I mean, the last two weeks, if you haven't, only if you've had your head stuck firmly up your ass, um, you, you can't not have seen what's been going on in, in across the globe, really, in terms of um, climate breakdown, in terms of, heat waves and heat domes and all this new language we have to deal with about very real kind of environmental impacts of of, um, of fossil fuel use over the last 200 years. And they're now talking about climate inflation, particularly around, there's two issues here, and I'll go to you first, Sean. There's one issue is, of course, how climate breakdown and the damage it does to economies means a drop in productivity. Now, a drop in productivity will translate, will it not, to the increase in the, in the availability, therefore, and price of goods, but also food production. And that's the real I think the third law of thermodynamics is that things reduce gradually and then all at once they suddenly collapse. And I think we saw the other day in Southern Europe, they're having a 60% drop in cereal production compared to last year and a 10% drop over the compared to the last five years of production. Now that's a serious drop in food production because of one series of heat waves. And we may see these heat waves potentially, particularly with El Nino coming in this year, 
every year from now on. So is climate inflation something we should start thinking about? And what what does it say about the next 10 or 20 years? Yeah, before I get on that, I suppose I'll just, just mention that the looming threat in the immediate term is a new wave of austerity, right? So central bankers are saying now that we've basically done as much as we can without wrecking the financial sector. It's now up to the political class to do their bit. And what they mean by that is a new wave of austerity to bring inflation down in line with the targets that they they have. Uh, so that's, that's the immediate threat. And in that context, all the, the, those distributional conflicts will become much more acute and severe. On the issue of climate inflation, yeah, I know we have our differences with him, but James Midway is one of the people that's been really good in this. Uh, he's been arguing for some time, when no one else has, that this isn't a transitory phenomenon. Whilst inflation might come down slightly in the short term, we should be really worried about the long-term impact of climate breakdown in driving persistently high inflation uh, in key sectors. So he rightly points out that the kind of supply chain and production problems that we've seen recently, they're not going away. They're going to become more severe as extreme weather events and other related shocks like COVID become more frequent and they will become more frequent. At the moment, because of droughts, because of the heat waves, we're facing crop failures and shortages across the globe. In Europe alone, cereal production is expected to fall by up to 60%. And cereal in its different forms, not only main source of food energy for humans, but it's a key component of uh, livestock feed. Uh, so there's all of those knock-on effects. There's predictions of hits the supply of fruit and vegetables, oils, and, and so on. And this pattern has been replicated across the globe. Uh, there was there was an estimate done, a study done fairly recently, which showed that the overall impact of heat waves and droughts on global food production has trebled over the past 50 years, which has culminated in a loss of crops of about 7 or 8% between 1991 and 2015. It's predicted that these are going to multiply in the years to come, the, these impacts, multiply by up to a factor of 10, right? So it, in the medium the long term, that means we are going to start to see food become more and more scarce and more expensive. What people might consider to be everyday food items, tomatoes, peppers, strawberries, whatever, will start to disappear from supermarket shelves or become luxuries only the wealthy can afford. Um, the cost of livestock farming will increase uh, with all of the, the effects that, that that brings. And then there's the, the impact of climate breakdown on you know, the wider economic system, and you've touched on it. There's a really good article in the Financial Times the other day that covered this. And it was looking at, you know, for example, workers having to be brought out of the heat and being told you can't work between 12 o'clock and 7 o'clock during the day because it's unsafe. That's a loss of productivity. In economic terms, it's a loss of productivity. It's a loss of economic activity. The impact on infrastructure, the impact of heat and frost and other extreme floods and other extreme weather events on, on infrastructure and the economic consequences that, that that has. The continued effects of climate breakdown on supply chains um, and transportation, um, which is going to make things more expensive. So in all these different ways, um, climate breakdown is going to have a persistently strong effect on, on inflation, on the price of things and, and what we can expect. Jesus fucking Christ, Sean. I was in a fucking bad enough mood this morning when I got out of bed. Now I'm fucking suicidal. What an apocalyptic view of the future. But 
Stuart, I'll give you the last word on this. He's not exaggerating, is he? In terms of, it's not just climate inflation. It's just in terms of how climate breakdown is going to affect world economies over the next five to 10 years and not in a very good way. And what that means for working people everywhere, actually. I'm Particularly all... because control of the means of production still lies in the people. So that they'll benefit from this. They'll still be able to get strawberries and, and yeah. tomatoes and peppers when they want it. But we won't be able to access the same foodstuffs, the same services that we we think of uh, we think of as, as normal and available to us won't be available potentially in five or ten years. I've always thought that it's being so fucking cheerful to keep Sean on the go. Uh, and he's excelled himself here to a certain extent. Uh, I'd... To go ahead and augment the fucking misery, I was looking at um, a magazine called Western Producer, an agricultural magazine, because I'm all about the fucking fun. U.S. winter wheat crop, major disappointment. Argentina, terrible crop. Australia, pedestrian crop. El Nino wrecking havoc in India and Southeast Asia. China, quality problems due to fucking harvest rains. This is a major issue that people aren't taking enough notice of because we always think, it's not going to happen to us. The climate crisis happens to a bunch of brown people we see in boats. Fuck them. Let's serve them to Rwanda. This will come and hit us. And it's, it's pretty much hitting us now. I want to also talk here about the Chinese situation too. We mentioned a little bit uh, in whenever you sent us some notes about this, about the IRA. Now, the Inflation Reduction Act is basically an attempt to get people to use America, um, American stuff more and to use Chinese stuff less. This has implications for the inflation situation now and in Europe. If you look over the last 30 years, the price of many goods and particularly services has fucking rocketed and also accommodation costs have rocketed too. The influx of cheap Chinese goods has helped keep inflation down and has helped maintain the living standards of the working class. Chinese inflation now is about 0.2%. The Chinese have never had the inflationary problems we've had over the last five or six years because it controlled the fucking prices. So it makes sense now to buy more stuff from China to reduce our inflationary rate. Looking at the figures here, Chinese products accounted for only 16.2% of US imports of manufactured goods last year compared to 30% in 2019. This movement away, which has been forced by the Americans, this movement away from buying from China will have a short-term and a long-term impact on our inflationary situation. Now, if the disbenefits of that were shared equally or taken disproportionately most by those who can afford to pay them, it wouldn't matter so much. We have to learn to live differently. We have to learn to live without growth because we cannot afford to grow because we are fucking the environment up. Important to note, one last thing here. If we go for these growth targets, of 3% per annum, which people seem to be quite mm -hmm. happy with. We double the size of the world economy in about 25, 26 years. We can't afford to do that. We have to look differently at growth, but we have to think about distribution, which is maybe the message of this podcast. Yeah, thanks for that, Stuart and Sean. Really, next time, I think we are going to talk about that, about because there, there are lots of arguments about growth and degrowth, but also what we mean by growth and how we measure growth and how we need to dump useless metrics like GDP, which don't really help us understand what's important in society and how we measure the things that we need to survive, not just in terms of goods and services, but in terms of community and solidarity and housing and all, all the things that aren't measured actually in GDP. But um, I think one of the lessons from me today, and we haven't talked about it, is that distributional conflict that Sean mentioned at the start is only going to get more intense over the next short while, largely because of climate breakdown, but also because of geopolitical nature of these moves away from, whether they're going to be successful, sort of moves away from the globalised nature of capitalism towards national capitalisms, which includes, of course, the IRA, the American, what's, it, what's the IRA mean again? 
Inflation Reduction Act. Inflation Reduction Act, fuck me. Yeah, and I'm stuff sure like that. And, then, and also China even announced, I think, yesterday that they were going to start producing their own microchips and not be reliant upon other nations to supply them. with. So you're, you're seeing this nationalizations of capitalism as people pull away from globalization. The immediate kind of cause of that, but not cause, but the immediate pro- I mean, outcome of that is going to be increased inflation on certain goods. So it seems as if inflation is going to be with us and here to stay. Uh, that's going to make conflict between the capitalist class and the working class more intense. Who wins out in that one and what happens to the working class and what the working class do about that is another matter because at the moment you could argue that in most parts of the world we're fucking nowhere and the working class increasingly are being recruited by and encouraged to join the right, in fact. And it's the ruling class who are recruiting the working class to their ranks rather than us organising our own ranks. And maybe that's a debate for another day about what do we do about all of this, lads. Thoroughly depressing. Thanks very much. I'm off to take a Valium uh, and I'm going to leave it there, lads, and we'll join us again. Just a wee plug here. Um, Stuart's going to talk about some, uh, he's going to plug some um, work that he's doing, but also for those who want to listen to more podcasts on the Left Block platform, go to leftblock.ie. There's four podcasts on there, Neil and Organised Language Podcasts, there's The Week at Work, a contemporary left-wing look at Irish politics and cultural kind of affairs. And there's also the ABCs of Green Politics, which is kind of a left green eco-socialist podcast. And we're going to be joined by a new podcast at the end of August, which I'll tell you about next time. But over to you, Stuart, to plug whatever it is you, you've been up to. Right, for Manifesto Press, I've been doing quite a lot of work, actually. I've just done something called Top 10 Economic Myths, in which we talk about inflation, some of the myths around that. That's been printed as we speak. I've done something called socialism or extinction, uh, which basically goes through in a sector by sector basis, uh, why we have to change the imperative to growth overall fact, and a collection of my straight lefts, a combination of straight lefts, all the stuff I've written, mostly about inflation for Unity magazine in the straight left column. So there's an awful lot there that you guys will find interesting. Thanks very much. That's We'll make sure that links to all of those publications are in the podcast. So check out the podcast for those links. Um, lads, thanks very much. And everyone listening, thank you for listening. We'll see you on the 101st podcast in a couple of weeks. Slangle foil. That, comrades, was Trademark Belfast. Thanks so much for listening in. We'll see you soon, either in the trenches or on the victory parade. Upper workers and slangle foil.